Welcome to the Dublin Festival of History podcast. In this episode, Geoffrey Roberts unveils his new research into Stalin's personal library with moderator Judith Devlin. Recorded at the Printworks Dublin Castle on the 25th of September 2016. So it's uh, a great pleasure uh, for me to introduce uh, Professor Geoffrey Roberts from Cork, Head of History in Cork. He's a leading authority on uh, 20th century Soviet history, the history of the Soviet Union, in particular the Stalin era and the Second World War, or the Great Patriotic War, as it's of course known uh, in Russia, uh, and has published a, a series of really leading uh, groundbreaking monographs on this, uh, starting with a reassessment of the Molotov Ribbentrop Pact, which I think some of you have made, heard a discussion about that yesterday. Jeff, I think we can say, reinterpreted this and uh, started a new way of looking uh, at, at that particular infamous or famous pact. Um, going on to a major reassessment of Stalin's war leadership, uh, prize-winning biography of Zhukov, just to enumerate a few of his publications. Uh, but today we're going to talk about his new project and his new book, which is on Stalin's personal library. And so with that, Jeff, I think, first of all, a, a short presentation uh, on the research uh, and on the project. And after that, we'll have um, an exchange of views. Thank you, for Judith, for that uh, very kind uh, introduction. Thank you to the organisers of the Dublin History Festival for inviting me and putting on such a, a fantastic uh, programme. I, I wish I could have been at this um, discussion about the Nazi Soviet Pact yesterday, because I, I, maybe the author's in the audience here, I don't know, I hope not, because I've got some very strong disagreements with him about the Nazi Soviet Pact. Um, and also, thank you for coming out on Sunday morning to this uh, discussion. Um, when I was asked to speak at the, uh, at the festival, uh, the initial idea was that I would speak about uh, one of my um, existing books, uh, but I thought it would be a good idea to talk about um, my current project, uh, Stalin's Personal Library, which is pro a work in progress. So bear that in mind <laughs> during the course of today's uh, discussion. Okay, so as, as a specialist in Soviet history, I go to Moscow once or twice a year to work in the archives. And while I'm there, I, um, you know, I buy books, I buy all kinds of things to bring back with me to Ireland. And one of the things I always make a point of bringing back is, um, is, a, is a Stalin calendar. Yeah, so, you know, calendar with uh, yeah, uh, every month there's a different image, picture, graphic, and text of Stalin, which I hang on my office wall, um, which he, some people find uh, a bit shocking. But as I explain to them, well, I, say, I always say two things. Firstly, um, this calendar, this annual Stalin calendar, uh, is produced by the Russian Orthodox Church. So how bad can it be? And the second point I make is actually a very interesting historical source. You can learn a lot from these uh, calendars. For example, this is the picture uh, for January 2015, and it's a, um, a painting by a, a Georgian painter, and it's called Comrade Stalin with Mother, painted in 1930. Not the kind of normal image you would associate with Stalin. Most people's image of Stalin would be, I don't know, if he had a, came from a very poor background, had a a brutal kind of upbringing, was a bit of a ruffian. Then he turns into a, a kind of very hardline Bolshevik militant uh, revolutionary. 
a bit crude, that kind of image. That would be a more normal image of Stalin. But what we have here is an image of Stalin, of Stalin the studious, yeah? The St Stalin, actually, um, who had a mother, a doting mother, who uh, encouraged him in terms of his education, as you see, uh, encouraged him to read it. So what we have here is an image of Stalin the studious, yeah? And actually, Stalin the studious is a truer kind of image of Stalin than all these other, other, other images, because yet Stalin was uh, studious. And that studiousness carried on throughout his whole life. Stalin started reading books, lots of books, from a young age, and he continued to do that until the day he died. Um, and as part of his lifelong learning, self-education, he constructed and built up um, a massive personal library of some 20 to 25,000 uh, volumes. Okay, and if there's one point I want to kind of get across to you today, it's this, Stalin was an intellectual. When you're studying Stalin, the big question everyone faces, uh, including me, is how do I get inside Stalin's head? Yeah? How do I know what Stalin was thinking, his most intimate thoughts, his real thoughts? And there's no simple answer to that question about how you get into Stalin's head. But one thing for sure is that you need to understand what kind of mind Stalin had. And Stalin's mind wasn't the mind of a monster or the mind of a psychopath, or even the mind of an ideological fanatic, although he certainly wasn't an ideological fanatic. Stalin's was the mind of an intellectual. So I think that's the key to understanding Stalin, is that he was an intellectual, that's the way he, his mind uh, uh, worked, and you can find evidence of that in many different places, including in his collection of library books, and hopefully those points will be brought up in the discussion with Judith. Now, the point about Stalin as an intellectual is this, is that because Stalin was an intellectual, because he lived in his head, because he lived in a world of words, concepts, and abstractions, that world en enabled him to do things. It enabled him to take the kind of harsh decisions that he, he felt he needed to take to pursue his utopian goals, but also acted uh, as a shield from the consequences of those hard decisions. Yeah? So there's no contradiction between Stalin the intellectual and Stalin the mass murderer. Two things are intimately connected. And there's another way of putting this, which actually only uh, came to me this morning. And I have to be careful about this point, because the thing you, you happens to you when you start writing biographies of people, particularly if your approach to the biography is, is one of empathy, you know, you're trying to really empathize, yes, not trying to attack them. You tend to kind of project onto your subjects aspects of your own personality. So maybe I'm projecting when I say, say this. Stalin as an intellectual lived in his head, and his head was either in the past or it was projecting ahead into the future. He didn't live in the present. In, in terms of our current kind of psychobabble, we would say that Stalin lacked mindfulness, which is what my wife says about me, by the way. You're always, in, in history, which is that's professional <laughs> attribute, I hope, but you're always, you're in the future, always thinking ahead. You're never actually here, never actually present. That's what she's always saying to me. I think the same is true of, of Stalin. And because he's not present, he can do 
all kinds of stuff. And because he's not present, Stalin lacks, I think this is the key thing, and I hope this doesn't apply to me, he lacks human empathy. I mean, that's the key thing about Stalin. He, he's an intellectual who lacks human empathy, which is not an uncommon trait of intellectuals, by the way. And so Stalin's lack of human empathy, which is obviously essential prerequisite from all these nasty things he did in his life, was, I think, a typical character trait of an intellectual, not um, some kind of personality trait. Okay, another picture of Stalin. Note the books, yes? He's reading the book of Lenin there. Oh, yeah, and then here. Um, this is a picture, a photograph of Stalin's dacha, his country cottage, his main country cottage, uh, which was built in Moscow in the early 1950s, just outside Moscow. In the side picture, there's, a, there's a, one of his sons, Vasily, and his daughter, Svetlana. Okay, and note the books. That, um, that room was called the Small Library. And wherever Stalin went, there were books. He was surrounded by books in this cottage, in other cottages, in his office, and in his Kremlin um, department. Wherever he was, he was surrounded by books. And wherever he was, when he wasn't reading official documents, he was reading books. Another room from the Dacha, Stalin was also very keen on maps. You can see those maps there. At the 20th Party Congress, um, Khrushchev, when he was attacking Stalin in 1956, he he accused Stalin of planning military operations using a globe of the world, yes? Complete and utter nonsense, that's not what happened. Stalin used very detailed maps to um, plan military operations during the Second World War, and he had a huge collection of detailed maps, military and otherwise. Unfortunately, most of them are still classified, so I haven't been able to look at them, but Stalin and maps. Okay, yeah, and here we go into the library itself. So in the early 1920s, Stalin starts to build his library collection. Okay, and he has a stamp made. And you can see the stamp here. Okay, and what it says, it says, um, um, Biblioteca Stalina. Okay, Stalin's library. Okay, and all the books coming into that library, at least in the 1920s, were stamped with that stamp to identify them as being part of his library. Okay, and then here we have an example of Stalin's annotations. Okay, so at the, at the core of my research is what survives from Stalin's library, or the most important part of it, is about 400 books, pamphlets, and periodicals, which he actually marked in some way, so that we know that he read them, we know that he looked them, and sometimes he, he, he marked them in very detailed ways. And this is one example, uh, and it's a kind of rather arbitrary example because because I could get a good reproduction of it for you. Uh, but actually, it's not a typical example. Stalin doesn't usually annotate in this, this kind of detail. It's, it's quite unusual. But I want to draw your attention to one of the things he says. You see where it says, maybe you can see it's an XA followed by an XA. Well, in Russian, that's ha-ha, ha-ha. There's lots of ha-has in Stalin's library books, yeah? In this case, it's a rather derisive ha-ha, right? In other cases, actually, it's a ha-ha chuckling. That's funny. Okay, so the point I want to make here is this. Okay, Stalin was a very engaged reader, very intensive reader intellectually, but he was also very engaged emotionally. There's a lot of Stalin's feelings expressed in these annotations in his library, including ha-ha. This is another book from the library, which is a history of the Roman Empire, and you see the library stamp there again. Okay, and this is an ex a page from the annotation of that book, and you can see um, he's 
underlined lots of things, yes, and sidelined lots of things. Um, and that's typical of Stalin's annotation. Most of the annotations look like that. That's what they look like. Now, this is a book about the history of the Roman Empire by a historian called Robert Vipa. Stalin is interested in a lot of things on this particular page, in, in, including the point that Vipa makes in this page that the importance of finance to the Roman Empire as well as military power. Okay. Now, this particular book by Vipa is the most annotated book in Stalin's personal library. This is about three, 400 pages long. Virtually every single page is annotated like that. And what Stalin's interested in? He's interested in the details of how the Roman Empire was run. And he's interested in the details of the fate of the Roman Empire, why it rose and why it fell. Uh, and this Robert Vipa, he wrote a number of other books on the history of ancient Rome, also Greece, and Stalin was equally uh, attentive to those books as well. Stalin was never as interested in the history of the Tsars as he was in the history of the Roman Empire. Another book, which is a study of um, uh, Marshal Kutuzov, the guy who beat Napoleon during the, when Napoleon invaded uh, Russia in 1812. Okay, and another example of an annotation here from Stalin, and he's underlined a sentence there in this book, and basically the sentence is underlined, says, if you train hard, then battle is easier, which is a very common maxim for military training, military academies across the world. And um, Kutuzov uh, and also Suvorov are often credited with this concept of the importance of training and preparation for battle. So he's just noted that. Ah, another interesting notation. This is another military book by um, a, a czarist Russian military strategist called Lear. L-E-E-R, who was the kind of rational alternative to Clausewitz. And he's crossed through his passage, and he's written in the side a word there, uh, Russian word, Slovobludia, Slovobludia, which means, well, it's hard to translate. Every Russian I ask, what does, it, what does Slovobludia mean? They give me a different answer. Um, but it means waffle, verbiage, just words, yes? And what he's doing there, this is a waste of space. And you find lots of annotations like that in this particular book, actually, but also in other books. He, he crosses through them and, and writes Slovobludia in the margin. And what's he doing there? He's basically saying, get to the point. Don't dilly-dally. Don't waste my time. Get to the point you're trying to make. Be direct. Be, be simple. Very, very revealing of how Stalin's mind works and how he constructs his own ideas. OK, another book. This is a book... Um, the title in English is Truth About American Diplomats. And the author is um, a woman called Annabelle Bucar. Annabelle Bucar worked in the American embassy after the Second World War, and she defected. She, was a, she wasn't a, a big diplomat. She was a, 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 a mid-grade official, you know, a functionary. She wasn't a diplomat at all. She defected, and she wrote this book, basically exposing the American embassy in Moscow as being um, uh, a den of spies, you know, <laughs> centre of espionage, yes, all that kind of thing. And Stalin was really, really interested, but made some extensive annotations, just some examples of that. And he's particularly interested, well, these are some names. He's under, you can see the annotation, that's the names of American diplomats, uh, including George Kennan, who's quite a well-known American diplomat. Um, and, he, and if you follow through the annotations, he follows through what he's about Kennan. Another one, Kennan's name... Uh, there, what Kennan's views, what's Kennan trying to influence uh, the Americans to um, 
reverse Roosevelt's policy of cooperation with the Soviet Union. Kennan saying that war with the Soviet Union is inevitable and that the United States has got to stop the Soviets from spreading socialism across the world. The United States wants to occupy the whole world. Um, and then this final sentence here, uh, it says, he's underlined it, the, uh, the American diplomatic service is, in essence, uh, an intelligence organization. So that's what Annabel Bukhar is saying in his book. Uh, and this is interesting because at the same time this is happening, there's a huge wave of xenophobia and spy mania has swept across the Soviet Union again. So it's, this, that's the context in which Stalin is reading this book. So it's kind of like, it's both reflecting and reinforcing his current thinking at the time, which is the danger of Western penetration and subversion of the Soviet system. This is after the war, the Cold War has broken out as this big ideological conflict going on. That's what's happening here. Okay, then finally, before I switch over to Judith, something, this missile um, military thought journal, 1946, and in particular article there, Stalin, um, the paragraph at the bottom there, you can see a few vague, uh, you know, very faint words there. And what, what the author is saying in the paragraph, he's, he's, he's emphasising the importance of um, uh, willful military leadership to winning battles. That's what he's saying in that paragraph. Strong leadership, determined uh, leadership. That's the key to military success, as well as all the other factors. And what Stein has written in the, um, the margin there is that, actually, the most important thing is knowledge of Marxism. So this is 1946, towards the end of his life. So right to all the way through to the end of his life, virtually, we have the evidence here. Stalin is reaffirming his faith in Marxism, in his own ideology. Right? So there's one fundamental thing you, um, you learn from Stalin, Stalin's personal library, is that Stalin was a genuine, true believer in his own ideology. He really believed all that stuff. And you can see those beliefs on the page when he's reading, when he's annotating. Sorry to have taken up so much of Judith's time, but thank you. Thank you very much, Jen, for that. I think it gives us a nice flavour of the interest and also, I think, the challenges, actually, of the project, because it involves reading a vast amount of literature and then trying to extrapolate from those sort of uh, side markings to explore Stalin's personality. Um, and while I've prepared lots of questions for this, and indeed I will draw on some of them, um, but I was very taken, especially with your introduction there, um, and indeed with the, the first picture that you put up of Stalin, Studio Stalin with his mother, uh, which is, of course, a cult image, and a very early one, which is really interesting. Um, and, of course, you, know, you make the very, I think, um, convincing case, or very persuasive case, that whereas we tend to think, oh, cult image, therefore it's fiction. And we've long had this view, oh, Stalin, you know, Stalin was just the thug who came to power, always you know, consumed with violence. Um, so perhaps just to, 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 to take up this one, because obviously the, the idea of constructing Stalin as the intellectual, which is, I think, very interesting in the way it leads into questions of his attitude to violence, his belief in the system, and so on. Um, but Stalin, the intellectual, it is, of course, it runs against a, a large vein, in fact, probably predominant vein of interpretation of Stalin. Um, uh, you know, his enemies said he's a sort of backwards man, hardly educated at all, despite the fact, of course, he, he goes, to, he, he's a relatively well-educated man for the, the Emperor, Russian Empire of the time. He, he goes, he has a sort of, well, the seminary 
was a sort of relatively advanced. He finishes that at the age of 20, or is expelled at the age of 20. He's not young at the time he actually finishes his education, whatever we might think about the quality of it. But anyway, just this notion of uh, Stalin, the intellectual, and I'm going to ask you whether you really go along with it. I wanted to get uh, a little quote to illustrate the kind of comments made about him. Um, the idea that Stalin was sort of dumb by comparison with all the other uh, Leninist leadership, uh, Bukharin, who you through there, Trotsky himself, of course, Lenin. Uh, this was just the guy who sort of muddled down there and did minor tasks until he, by his natural violence, assassinated everybody. There was a quite nice little um, arrogant uh, quotation, I think, here from Trotsky that defines it. And he's talking about uh, Stalin in 1923. He says, there began a definite period of decline in the course of which the world was amazed, not so much by Stalin's force, his will, and his implacability, as by the low grade of his intellectual resources and political myths. So Stalin is uh, a sort of dummy. Um, so I just sort of bring you back to this to elaborate perhaps on this point you have for a bit. Um, were they not really perhaps right? You know, let me be the devil's advocate here in suggesting, dismissing Stalin, the mediocrity, a man who indeed had to have a tutor to teach him Marxism in the 1920s. Is this? You, no, no, don't they, go no, that. no, no, they're, no. Comple <laughs> they're completely and utterly uh, wrong. Um, before I answer, let me just respond to the point you made again about it, it is a, a difficult project, it's the most mm. challenging project I've ever taken on. And, you know, quite often I kind of regret taking it on, <laughs> I can't do this, you know, it's too hard, I just can't. You know for various reasons. But one advantage I have in this project is this, mm. is that um, in my youth, mm. I was a Marxist myself. Mm. Not, a, not a Stalinist, I hasten to it. Never ever a Stalinist. I was very mm. anti-Stalin mm. and anti-Stalinist. Mm. Um, but one, what that means is that a lot of the stuff that Stalin read, and also a lot of the issues he was interested in, mm. you know, I spent years mm. <laughs> reading all that stuff myself. So a lot of his library materials, particularly the stuff he annotated, it's very, very familiar <laughs> to me. Mm. So that means I can get through mm. the material um, quickly. No, um, Stalin was very well educated. He went to a church school, and then he went to a seminary, and he, he got good marks at seminary. He was a very good, um, good seminarian. And, and Stalin's whole life was devoted to self-education and self-improvement. And you know, the thing to remember about you know, the Soviet project, Soviet socialism, it wasn't just about you know, constructing a socialist society. It was about the transformation of human nature, yes? Uh, and, and that transformation was, okay, it was a collective process, but it was also an individual process. Individuals improving their learning, their knowledge, their skills, their consciousness, right? So that's what, as a good Soviet citizen, you were supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be involved in a lifelong process of intellectual development, right? And Stalin, that's what Stalin was involved in. You know, in that sense, he took the project, um, uh, the project seriously. Now, it, it took a while for Stalin to mature as an intellectual, right? Um, and when I think when Trotsky's okay writing this kind of stuff in 1923, okay, this is just part of a polemic, or whenever he wrote it, it's part of a polemic against Stalin. It's part of, he's trying to put Stalin down. There's a struggle going on, so it's personal abuse of that kind. But I think in a way, Stalin and a lot of people, sorry, Trotsky and his kind of sponsors, what they're they're thinking of is maybe the Stalin they knew from earlier days, from earlier years, when he wasn't a fully developed intellectual, when he was still learning, he was still developing. So their kind of image of Stalin 
uh, was fixed from the time before the revolution, when Stalin himself cultivated the image of not being an intellectual, but of actually being you know, a proletarian or a plebeian uh, agitator. Yeah? So I think that's what's going on. Now, this story about Stalin um, needing a, you know, a tutor, a philosophy tutor to teach him philosophy, okay, I'm not sure how true that story is, but you can turn the story around. This is this, actually. Stalin had the sense to see he needed a bit of help with understanding some difficult philosophical issues. So why not get a tutor? Why not get some ex uh, expert advice? And, why, and it's the other thing about Stalin's reading, because when he reads, he's reading to learn. To learn from experts. And that, and you can just see it. You can see. I, I, I think it's very true. I mean, you can get this sense of um, Stalin as a man of the late uh, 19th century, you know, this uh, preoccupation with the book, uh, you, know, the, you know, educational source of knowledge, uh, book as revelation, um, self-improvement, the autodidact. Mm. Um, and that was a very, very common, I think, attitude, late 19th, early 20th sure. century. So in that sense, um, you know, it makes perfect sense, I think, to see Stalin in this light. Um, one might also say that Stalin, in a sense, is much more intelligent than many of his rivals, uh, who took for granted, I mean, their arrogance blinded them, I think, to his basic intelligence. Um, and, uh, of course, on the other hand, uh, so they thought, you know, years in exile, writing enormous treatises, that proves that we're the intellectuals, whereas Stalin, uh, who spent the years in Russia either in exile or planting bombs or being a radical, that doesn't count. And in a way, it plays, of course, into, I think, Stalin's hands in the 1920s, uh, because Stalin is able to play up to many party uh, activists and members who, of course, haven't spent the uh, pre-war years in Geneva cafes. I say, here we were on the ground preparing the revolution, whereas these guys were just writing. So Stalin actually doesn't promote himself, I think, would that be correct, as an intellectual, um, in, you know, to, to his followers in the party. He doesn't I, I, well, take I, that... Maybe not in the 1920s, but mm. I think as time moves on, he oh. more and more projects himself as being an intellectual. Uh, Stalin's model, of course, here was, was Lenin. Yeah, it was about that, an intellectual. Well, well but Stalin, I suppose, of the, the cult period and that lovely yeah. image that you showed, yeah. you know, Stalin against enormous library. But as you say, he's, he's, highly, <coughs> he's highly intelligent, yes. Mm. But, but when I say he's a, an intellectual, I don't necessarily mean he's a great intellectual. Mm. I mean, he's a serious intellectual, mm. yes. Um, he's not mm. a great intellectual. He's not an original thinker. Mm. You know, he's a summarizer. He's a, um, you know, he's a schematizer. As well, so it's, uh, but also, of course, Stalin's not just the intellectual; he's also a man of action, mm -hmm. um, as Lenin was, of course. Uh, the, 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 the Russian term, the Soviet term, is pratique. Yeah, so mm -hmm. Stalin prided himself in being a comp both an intellectual and a pratique. It was the combination. Although and I came across an interesting, right. just one point, mm -hmm. an interesting um, description of. Stalin's uh, intellectual qualities, and this is by an intellectual. And he said, you know, think about Stalin. Um, um, he was the master of simplicity, yeah, and he had the ability to combine critical reasoning with the land of action. Yeah, so that ability to simplify for the purpose of translating ideas into action. I mean, that was. And, 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 Depends on what you think are, are, are good intellectual qualities. Personally, I think you know there's a lot to be said for simplicity.
clarity. Oh, yeah, simplicity. Directness, is, a lot, is lot of intellectual discourse, <laughs> yes. particularly in academia, yeah. is obfuscation, isn't it? And, you know, oh, you, absolutely. Um, just before we sort of move on into the library and some of the books, I know sure. you've read lots of these books and, and studied his annotations on them, so it would be good to talk perhaps sure. about that. Um, uh, but just sort of a, a couple of questions, perhaps. How are we doing time? I'd be okay, I think, for a mm. bit. But, um, do you think he had an inferiority complex in relation to people like Trotsky and Bukharin or not? In the twenties, let's say. A lot of people say that. I, 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 no, I, I don't know. I don't think so. Um, the, the only um, poss person possibly you could say had an intellectual superior, uh, uh, inferiority complex would maybe in relation to to Lenin. That's oh, possible. But even though I'm not convinced, that, my my feeling is that that Stalin revered mm. Lenin. Um, but he, he didn't feel inferior to Now, of course, in terms of his annotation, the, the writer who he annotates most, reads most, <laughs> is, is Lenin. Is Lenin. And, and generally, his annotations um, you know, are, are you know, positive. You know, he, he reads Lenin you know, to learn. But he also, to some point, he also reads Lenin because when he's involved in the, um, the, the struggle in the, in the party within the 1920s, after Lenin dies, mm. the struggle for the succession, what, part of what the struggle is about is about who is the new, the new Lenin. Yes, so, so Stalin, in studying Lenin in depth, uh, turned him into the, himself into the master of Stalin of Lenin's words. Yes, so he was the master of Lenin quotations. So he was able to project himself very effectively, of being, you know, the, you know, the, the true, uh, you know, the true, the true, true Leninist. I, I, you, you kindly sent me quite a lot of material. Or you shared a lot sure. of your material with me before this. And one of the things that struck me very much, following up on this Lenin point, was that there were in his library that you, you sort of sent to me, kind of the uh, catalogue, 73 volumes of Lenin, dating mainly from the 20s and the mid-30s, carrying his annotations. So he has annotated 73 volumes yes. by the mid-30s of Lenin. And so I, what I wondered was really what they told us about his attitude to his predecessor. You said he revered him. And um, also coming back to this sort of the, the, the mythic Stalin, the, the Stalin constructed by his enemies, mm. people like Trotsky, etc., um, who would have jumped in and, uh, as would a lot of historians, I think, classically have done, jumped in and said, oh, well, these, this was just to make sure that the different editions of Lenin that came out conformed with the currently official Stalinist version uh, of history, etc. Uh, in your reading, does, does, you know, what are your conclusions on the basis of what you've looked at? Well, it, uh, it, it, it reads 73 volumes, but it doesn't necessarily read every page, or annotate every page, you know. He, he, that marks he, them, he, say, yeah. Well, he's, he skims. There's a lot mm. of skim reading, yeah, and he focuses on particular sections. So, no, he doesn't go through all 73 mm. pages, 73 volumes of Lenin in detail and annotate. He just doesn't do that. Well, having said that, Stalin inclined to read, I can't, I don't quite believe this, he claimed to read 500 pages of books a day, in addition to all his other reading, yeah, 500 pages a day, that's what he said. I, I can't believe that's true, but okay. But, but, so he, 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 he did read a lot, and he was a, a, a speed reader as well. So he read, but I don't, you know, he didn't read Lenin. The other thing that Stalin did in relation to Lenin, he, he cheated a bit, because there's a lot of um, Lenin kind of compilations, you know, excerpts from his work, key quotations, all that. And certainly Stalin paid a lot of attention to those kind of works and annotated those. You know, so it's, it's, it's kind of um, it's a bit of a shortcut he's taking. You know, so it's sensible. Oh, oh, it seemed like, sense, seemed like to me to be a sensible thing to do. I mean, we all do that, don't we? Yes. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. when you see, yeah. when you see but, the but in terms of, of yeah, but there's no. Um, there's a, <laughs> yeah, Stalin. Okay, Stalin is not. Well, 
there's only, only, only one point that Stalin is Stalin critical of Lenin, when Lenin had talked about the withering of way of the state under socialism. Mm. Stalin, in, in private, not in public, never, never criticises Lenin in public ever. Mm. Uh, he, he disputes that point mm. of, uh, of Lenin's. His point is that, you know, under socialism, you need to have a, a strong state. And, you know, okay, it will wither away eventually when we get to the communist utopia, but that's a long time ahead. In the meantime, the party, if it's going to rule the country, it rules through the state, right? And the state has to be strong in order to defend the system of socialism against both its internal enemies and its external enemies. So, so that, you know, you can see Stalin disagreeing with Lenin on this point about the, the withering away of the state. But, but everything else, he it's clear from the annotations that he... He agrees with Lenin, and he's reading Lenin, as I say. Stalin's always reading to learn. That's what he reads for, mostly, to learn. Okay, sometimes he's seeking ammunition to have a go at his opponents, and you know, blah, blah, blah. But mostly, he's learning, he's reading to learn. And above all, he's trying to learn from Lenin. I, I'd love to pursue by asking you what, about, you, know, what you gather about his attitude to Trotsky and so on. Mm. But I think for you've talked a bit about him yeah. uh, as a Marxist. You think he's not really an original Marxist thinker, but he's a serious Marxist Absolutely. and a believing Marxist. But uh, just to move on then perhaps to another point that you brought up in your talk about um, Stalin as an intellectual has this tendency towards abstract thinking. Mm. So when he's given a list of names to sign off, should these people be executed? He, indeed, in this, one could say it's like um, Lenin, who does the same thing, he just ticks, yes, yes. Um, that this tendency to abstraction uh, enables him to distance himself from the violence uh, that you know, accompanies his rule, certainly um, you know, when the whole first five-year plan goes catastrophically wrong, uh, and then the terror. Um, so th the question is, is this... Um, this certainly perhaps uh, mitigates or softens the typical attitude, the typical um, judgment on Stalin in relation to, to violence. Um, how far do you think uh, he, I mean, because after all, he does agree, for example, to the use of torture in, uh, during the terror, and he you know, goes ahead with that. Um, do you think that, that there is, um, that your study and your, your understanding of him and his personality in relation to this, uh, should prompt us to reconsider him as a, you know, as a, we, a man who instigates quite a lot of, you know, well, you should, horrendous violence. In fact, should, I mean, you shouldn't mm. confuse empathy mm. with, with sympathy. You're mm. just trying to understand Stalin. Yeah. Um, no, I'm not, not it, No, I'm sympathy. just talking about yeah, me, not yeah, you. Yeah. It doesn't mm. mean to say I sympathise with him. Or, no, no, no. I'm, you know, I'm not suggesting. Yeah, no, I'm not suggesting either. This is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah, I'm not, not, I know you're not, but some people mm. think that I might be suggesting that, <laughs> and I'm not. I'm not doing it. I'm, saying, I'm, I'm, I'm engaged mm. in trying to understand mm. Stalin. And, you know, uh, there's a lot, lot that you can mm. condemn uh, mm. Stalin, Stalin about. Yeah, okay. Mm. So, so obviously, one of the big things one's trying to understand about is, is why, how, and why he presided over this. Very violent authoritarian regime, which achieved a lot of stuff, but also a huge kind of cost. How he was able to do that um, as a person, yeah, in this, this particular case. Okay, and I'm suggesting one part of the explanation is um, his even intellectual. The argument I've made about an intellectual being able to abstract himself from the reality of, of, of what he's doing and the situation is created. That, that's my argument. Another part of the argument is a kind of um, a kind of historical developmental argument, because of course, 
the kind of brutalization, or there's a significant brutalization of Bolshevism and of Bolshevik leaders during the Civil War. Yeah? During the Civil War, Stalin, as an intellectual, can't hide from the reality because he's out there in the field, yes, and serving as a commissar on various fronts. So, you know, he's nowhere of escaping. So, I think, you know, Stalin, like a lot of the other Bolsheviks who are out in the field, actually, you know, they hardened up. They hardened up in, in terms of being able to cope with. Uh, being responsible for and witnessing violence of, of very extreme kinds. Um, so the whole, brutal, you know, the brutalizing effect of the Civil War, I think, is crucial. And when Stalin later on, you know, when Stalin is pursuing these very brutal, repressive policies, resulting millions of people being killed, he's always referring back to the Civil War, always referring back to Lenin. And Lenin's policy during the Civil War, the Bolsheviks had to be ruthless. Yeah, to kill their opponents, even though Bolshevism as an ideology wasn't a pro-violent, wasn't a violent, violent ideology. It wasn't pro-violence. You know, they were anti-violence, but violence was necessary. Right? And then, so, so the civil war expression. And the third thing is the ideological thing. Yes, uh, it's, you know, the ideology rationalised the use of large-scale violence. Ide you know, violence in the pursuit of utopia, the ends justifying the means. So the whole role of Marxist, Leninist ideology, as interpreted by Stalin, is very crucial in terms of us understanding. So it's the intellectual, the ideologue, and you know, the practical experience of the Civil War. But of course, after the Civil War, Stalin very rarely <coughs> leaves the Kremlin. Yeah? From the early 1920s, he very rarely leaves the Kremlin or Moscow, yes? Um, so he's very sheltered from this fantastic, um, this transformation of the Soviet Union, this successive crisis, he's actually he's sheltered from it personally. He's, it's all happening in yes, his in head. The, in the Kremlin or down <coughs> on the bottom. Or, 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 or in his cottage, yes. During the war, he only visits mm. the battlefield once. Well, I don't think he liked the experience. He yes, he, he never did. He never did it. Yes, so, so, so the personal physical isolation uh, of Stalin is important to understand how this, this, mm. this intellectual kind of mentality can function in the way I'm suggesting it and does. And of course, I think just, uh, it, it's not, not quite relevant to our, our topic today, but he does, I mean, he becomes much more isolated, I think, in, from the early 30s yeah. on, yes. and uh, yes. that becomes more and more acute. So, uh, you know, he becomes more and more, I think, caught up in a, which is not, of course, <coughs> unusual for politicians, or very powerful politicians. They live in a bubble. And, yes. Um, and in relation to your, just your assessment of Stalin, the intellectual, you might remember that many, many of the people who worked with him uh, during the war, after the war, uh, were very impressed by Stalin, his command of detail, his memory. Uh, you didn't go into a meeting with Stalin unless you knew your brief backwards. Um, so Stalin, you know, despite what Trotsky and, and Co. say about him, uh, and it's clear already in the 1920s, a much more formidable uh, you know, intelligent man than they ever really uh, admit. Now, I know time's getting on, we have to... Perhaps one last question. We're skipping over Stalin and know-all, Stalin and history, which perhaps some of you might like to sure. uh, bring up in, in the audience. But just uh, Stalin and the arts, which we haven't touched on either. Um, but just perhaps a final question from me then would be just um, about the unknown Stalin. Uh, your project as a way into the man's personalities. We've talked about that a bit. Um, but in, and you've talked, looked at his reading in Marxism and history and military matters. Do we get any sense of the man who read for pleasure, for entertainment, out of curiosity? Or was his reading um, purely functional, you know, reading for a political end or indeed for self-development in a I, rather narrowly conceived manner? I mean, what, what observers say, witnesses, mm. they say that mm. he always read with a pencil in his hand. 
So he was always prepared to make an annotation, even if he didn't. Um, so I think when he's reading non-fiction, that's true. He, he doesn't read, um, he never reads for pleasure, non-fiction. It's always functional in that sense. And the other thing he said about Stalin in his brief, the thing about Stalin is he, did, he didn't depend on his officials for his briefing. He did his own research, including he read books. He did his own deep background reading. So he always knew a lot more than people expected him to know, <laughs> actually, including his own officials. So, so, so that's, that's interesting. But no, um, I think, what I, I think, I mean, there's very few literary texts that survived that he annotated, which seems to indicate that when he's reading fiction, and he read a lot of fiction as well, he didn't annotate mm -hmm. it, so he's reading it more for pleasure. And mm -hmm. Stalin always said, he, he's always saying that it was important to study Marxism, but it was also important, important to study the classics of world literature, mm -hmm. because there was a lot of stuff you could find out about you know, history and mm -hmm. people and societies. That was one of his things. And of course, he, uh, he was very keen on Soviet literature, literature and there was the Stalin um, Peace pro, uh, literary Prize, prizes, yeah, yeah. and he, he took a very active role in that. So he certainly read well, books. But of course, he knows, you know, the, yeah. the great use of it, you know, the mass yeah, culture. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so I, th I think he does, uh, he does, yeah, he, do, he does relax mm. with fiction. Yes, to some extent. Yes, to some extent, but mostly, I think, is you know. <laughs> yeah. the part of yes. yes, yes. Okay, well, uh, Jeff, you know, there are 101 topics sure. we could um, cover, but we don't have time. So at this stage, I think I'd like to open it up to the floor to allow people to uh, ask questions. Um, okay, there's one here, another here, so we could start off, perhaps. Hello, Jeffrey. Um, thank you very much. It was a very interesting talk. I tried to be a Marxist myself, so um, and I enjoyed both your books. Could I just ask, and maybe you could take us through what is never discussed in the West, and which I believe is one of the greatest economic miracles the world has ever seen, and that is between the year of 1920 into the 1950s, and I refer to the growth of the Soviet Union in terms of its uh, economy. And one has to bear in mind that uh, pre-1710-17, the Russian, the Soviet Union was in absolute poverty, and to understand where the people were living then, and all of that stuff, with a lot of us know about but I would, would like you to maybe just give us a brief analysis on Stalin's contribution to that, because it's never really spoke about, and yet it's an undeniable fact. Thank you. Well, well Stalin presides over a massive transformation and modernization of the Soviet Union from the 1920s through to the 1950s, uh, but it's a very a costly transformation. You know, the achievements, the economic achievements are very costly, and there's a discussion about were they too costly or were there alternative roads and so on. But one thing to say about that is that it, it, it wouldn't have happened at all if it hadn't been for Stalin's determination to actually see it through and prepare to see it through. But whether that was right or whether it's worth the cost, that's obviously a matter of political judgment. Of course, the other thing you say about Stalin's achievement, and this is, this is my argument, this is what I argue in my book, um, Stalin's as Wars, is that you know, Stalin's greatest achievement was in, was in beating Hitler defeating Nazi Germany, and I'm strongly of the view that without Stalin's personal contribution, then it's very likely, likely, probable, that Hitler would have won the war, Nazi Germany would have, uh, uh, would have triumphed. So, you know, for me, you know, you know, I'm always say about Stalin, you know, he's responsible for monstrous acts, but also some fantastic achievements of bubble, uh, you know, the defeat of, uh, of fascism. There was somebody over here? Now you said at the start that you didn't agree with the, the 
historian last night or yesterday who was who, on the Nazi Soviet pact. I was just wondering what your opinion was on that. Well, I don't want to go into it, but, but it, um, that particular book is written mainly from the, um, the German perspective on the Nazi Soviet pact, yeah, whereas my work is from the Soviet perspective. So the differences I have with him are actually more about perspective, I think, you know, rather than, you know, I don't, I don't disagree with what he says about the German side of the Nazi Soviet pact, but when he ventures into my territory, I, yeah, I start to bridle and say, no, no, you can't do that. You don't know. You don't, what do you know about things like that? So, so it's that kind of stuff, stuff like that. But, you know, I, I, you know, yeah. So just as an addendum to the last one, um, yesterday uh, Morehouse said that uh, Stalin made very little uh, preparation for war once the pact was signed, but I, conventional history said otherwise. Yeah, that, that's completely true. There, there, there were, the Soviet Union was preparing for war with Germany from 19, early 1930s. There was massive preparations. Now, you can have the argument about the adequacies, preparations, the mistakes that were made, in particular in, in the run-up to war, but there's no doubt about, about the huge, um, the huge, the, the huge preparations that make you know. And obviously, I've written, I don't know, several books, zillions of articles uh, about this uh, particular topic. And if you go online and Google my name, you'll, you'll you'll be able to get access to these articles. Okay, I think over here, somebody, uh, two people here. That you kind of asked about this a little bit the last day. He's studying geopolitics, history, all of that stuff. But there's a kind of a part of me dying to find out where is the, you know, the depth, the inner life, the man inside. He has relationships. He has uh, a lot of understanding, I guess, of people. And he's living in a time when there's books by Freud, there's books by Jung, there's a lot of stuff on the, you know, does he have any, in, and even in Tolstoy, those classics or Joyce, you know, he's, he's living with modern books. And does he have, do you get any sense of a reflective, Depth to him, you know. We can be multifaceted, you know. The Nazis with their families and that differently. Um, I suppose it's that, you know. Sure. The, the, if he's an intellectual curiosity, is he coming across things that challenge him, existential, spiritual, yeah. uh, philosophical, psychoanalysis, those ideas? Where do, do they ever pierce his um, yeah. thinking? First point is that Stalin's reading is restricted to, to stuff that's in Russian, Russian translation. You know, he, he does know some foreign languages. Because when he was in the seminary, he studied Greek and, and uh, Latin, and did quite well. <laughs> um, but he, he, you know, he's only comfortable in Russian or Georgian, of course. So, so, so it's like he can only read what's available in translation. And a lot of the stuff you're talking about is not available in translation at that time. So there is that. Second point is, he's a Marxist, and he believes Marxism is a universalistic ideology, a science, has the key to everything. So from a Marxist perspective, if you're, if you're in, that, in that frame, and I've been in it myself, you don't really feel the need to go outside of it because you can just read what Marxists say about stuff. Yeah, and you know, what Marx says about Freud, what the Marxist analysis of James Joyce, that's, what, that's the way you go. I think that's the way Stalin, Stalin goes as well. But having said that, he also you know, reads some surprising things. You know, some, you know, it's not just Marxist stuff. Like I was just reviewing my notes this morning just in case Judith has some hard, hard you know, not tricky questions for me about, you know, the, well, I'm looking at the books in the archive and that. And I, I remember, I came across my notes. He read a book, published in 1945, about constitutional law, comparing the different constitutions across several countries. And he was absolutely fascinated by 
the details of different constitutional structures, different referendums. You know, very, very, actually, reading the book is very topical in the light of you know, Brexit and referendums and stuff like that, and federalism and confederalism. He was absolutely fascinating. So, he, 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 okay, yeah, he is a kind of Marxist. To a certain extent, he's quite narrow-minded, but he has the ability, which a lot of Marxists don't, did, don't, didn't have, to think outside his own box, get outside of it. Yeah? Yeah, and he's willing to do that because he's willing to learn. He's willing to learn from non-Marxists as well as from Marxist sources. Over here. It's a rather unnecessary question because you've just answered it. I was interested to know if he read outside of his native language. I wondered if anything like Burke's reflections on the French Revolution turned up, or any Nazi ideology. You think he'd have read the enemy. I'm very interested in your last comment about his study of constitutionalism because one felt some of one lived long enough one might get better, and maybe that applied to Stalin as well. Mm. Was there any remaining of his um, seminarianship, any interest in theology at all? But I'm more interested in the Nazism. Thank you. Of course, what, the one book that we know that Stalin read, and read in a great detail, knew it inside out, I expect, was, which book was that? What's the one book we know he read for sure? What? No, which book did Stalin read? The Bible, yes, he was spent Ten years in the church laws, he, he read the Bible. But having said that, you know, he used like common phrases like, you know, God bless or God only knows or that kind of thing like that. But I see no evidence of the biblical in in his annotations, except to say, of course, you know, this thing about biblical ex exegesis, so uh, liturgy and stuff like that, about enumerating points and responding. There is an element of that in, in the way he reads and the way he annotates. So maybe, but not explicit. There's no explicitly religious stuff, and there's no explicit references to Nazism. Although he's very interested in German history in the 19th century, and that's another general point. And again, it's something that's only came to me actually this morning, literally this morning. When I'm thinking about what I'm going to say here, is this, and it's kind of obvious to someone like me when you think about it. Is that the main thing that Stalin reads for, and it cuts across everything virtually. He's reading to learn from history. He's learning the lessons of history. He's annotating his books to learn from history. It just cuts across the whole of his reading. He's learning. He's most in, he's interested in history. He wants to learn from history, and that is what you know. Seventy to eighty percent of his reading is devoted to that learning from history. A rather kind of obvious point for a historian. I would have thought to pick up on. Here and then down at the back, Jeffrey. You mentioned the point that you regularly visit the archives in, sure. in Moscow. Yes. It's perhaps just a, a personal impression, which may not yeah. be totally wrong, that the Soviet archives opened up in the post-1991 era, yes. but somehow they've all been withdrawn or closed down again. Is that the fact, or what's the current no. state of no, one I accessing? No, I mean, it's kind of, as Lenny might said, it's like two steps forward, <laughs> one step back, but, you know. But generally, there's more available now than there's ever been. Okay, some bits have been closed off or withdrawn, but a lot of stuff that was out there and then they withdrew it, then it's come back into circulation. So if you take the last 25 years, it's a story of accumulative, more and more access, more and more stuff becoming available. Of course, there's certain bits of stuff that, which are unavailable, which people complain about. Like there's a, a presidential archive where apparently a lot of sensitive material is kept and foreigners uh, aren't allowed to go up to use the presidential library, and even most Russian historians. You know, it's a privileged kind of access. But no, the general picture is you know, more and more archive access. You know, I'm going back to Moscow in December, and you know, there's some new files which have been released in the last couple of years, nothing to do with this, this particular project, but other projects 
I'll, I'll be looking at it, and I'm confident that I'm going to see some lot, lots of interesting material. Yeah, so it's a very, overall, you know, it's not about difficulty. It's not like working in, you know, the public record, obviously, queue or in the national records here or in the United States. You know, it's not like that. It's, it, it's problematic in many respects, but there's a lot of, lot, lot of material that we can now access. Down at the back. Where is his library now? What happened to the 20,000 volumes? Well, uh, uh, well, it, 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 it's a bit of a mystery. Apparently, they were dispersed to other libraries, yeah? The stuff that wasn't stamped was dispersed, the literature and all that kind of stuff like that. But then what was retained was about 5,500 books, about 5,000 books which were in a particular library in Moscow, and then about 400 books of annotated collection, which is in an archive. So that's what we got. But the 5,000 books in this library in Moscow they only date to 1932. So this is his non-fiction library. So we don't have any post-1932 books from his non-fiction library. So what happened to those books? Yes, these, these are the ones that he didn't actually annotate. So somehow thousands upon thousands of books from his library went missing after he died. And that's a, that's a kind of mystery or a story I'm trying to track down and trying to, to piece together. I just wanted to ask about the, the category of the intellectual. It seems yes. to me a bit problematic because you could be an intellectual and focus more on imaginative literature which could increase, increase your empathy. So I kind of wonder about the, the difference between an intellectual and an ideologue because it seems the way you're using intellectual sounds like it does have a certain pejorative tendency. Which I can, and I can understand you'd want to clarify that he has an intellect that he has a mind, that he's yeah, no, studious. No, I, 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 wasn't, I wasn't using it pejoratively. And you're right, of course, intellectuals come in all kinds of different shapes and sizes. They're different types of intellectuals. Yeah, and it is a problematic concept because it's an idea that I've come up with quite recently, this frame of this notion of Stalin as intellectual as being the key to understanding him and, and the way to read his library. So it's a new idea for me, so I need, I need to sharpen up, I need to do some work in I was meaning by it, someone who thinks ideas are important, whose currency is ideas concepts, abstractions, that's the way their mind works, and they're trying to generalise, theorise, analyse, organise, yeah, that kind of intellectual thinking. That's the kind of thing I'm getting at, that's my notion. But, but also, you can be too, in a way, I, I'm, you know, one of the reasons I'm historian, because I'm not big into these like, extended like, debates about definitions and analysis and distinctions, it seems to me that you can understand how the world works much better, much more clearly, by working through narrative through telling stories. So I, I want to tell the story of Stalin's intellectual life and his intellectual development through the prism of his library. But it's going to be a story. It's not going to be an analysis or a series of distinctions. So it's, I, want to, I want to narrate Stalin's intellectual consciousness. That's what I'm going to try to do in this book. Well, with that definition of the project, I'm afraid we're going to have to bring the session to a close. I'd like to thank Jeff very much for stimulating an interesting discussion, talk, um, and also the organisers of the Festival of History, which is, I think, a super idea. With that, many thanks to all. Just before you leave us, Geoffrey, can I have a final question? As, sure. as a librarian, I, I'm curious, did he have a librarian looking after this uh, library? I see the accession stamp. Was he stamping them himself? Well, yes, he, he... No, 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 he had staff. I, I don't he had think, a librarian? No, I don't think he had a specific librarian as such, but he had secretaries and stuff like that in his office, Kremlin, and in his dachas. And you have people there. So they were actually responsible for organising the books, taking stuff. Yeah, so, so he, had, he had library staff, but not actual professional librarians, uh, which is a pity, you know. <laughs>
for the rest of the librarians, maybe they might have saved More the library yes, maybe, maybe, <laughs> for yeah, us yeah. posterity. Well, well, I'd like to thank uh, Geoffrey for a fascinating discussion this morning, and, and Judith also. Thank you very much for your um, moderation of this event. <laughs>